0: Back in Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 15, so if you're using a digital Bible, you click Matthew, or New Testament, Matthew chapter 15, if you're using your uh, paper, analog Bible, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, you know where to find it. Chapter 15, and we are going to begin with verse 21, and go all the way to verse 39. Matthew 15, verse 21 to 39. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre in Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. He answered, from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on a mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on their way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this word that you have given us, we know we can only understand truly if your spirit enlightens us. And So we pray that your spirit would teach us tonight. Pray, Lord, that as I speak, that my words would be clear and they would be the words that you have ordained be spoken tonight regarding this very text. I pray, Lord, that the the message that I preach would be the point that Matthew and your Holy Spirit want us to hear. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Can um, someone plug in our beautiful lights? We have someone with a key. It's 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 upstairs in that first room. you have a key, Austin? All right. Thank you. That's why we did this at night, just the setting. Um, But it will be dark soon enough. Well, if you were here with us the last three weeks, we were going through the book of Proverbs with Dustin and Josh, just very quickly, a flyover. Um, But now, after that short break, we're back in Matthew's gospel, or the gospel according to Matthew, And we are at this really interesting section that I never really understood very well before I did a deep dive into Matthew's Gospel. And and I am now more excited about this text than I have been about many of the other texts that I've preached. And that says a lot. Um, So let me me just tell you this, because you need some context in order to really kind of gather what's happening here. When, When the New Testament writers talk about the gospel, the Greek word that they use nearly all the time is euangelion. Eu, meaning good, e-u, meaning good. It's the same root that we see at the beginning of, of eulogy, good word, a good word spoken. So you meaning good, and angelion, meaning message or announcement. So those two ideas together give us the idea of a good announcement. To, to them, the, the gospel, the euangelion, wasn't so much a set of ideas as it was a proclamation of good news. That's what that word means. So, so think of it like this. When you get a wedding announcement or a, a birth announcement, those are little gospels. Little euangelions. Good announcements. You may have heard the, the, the classic story of the Battle of Marathon, where the king's at his camp, he's awaiting the news of the outcome of the battle, and the runner comes to the king's camp with news from the battlefield, and he makes the announcement. If he proclaims that the king's side has won, it's what we call a good announcement, right? That's good news. You and If it's bad news, there's another word it's CNN. That's a joke. Come on. Okay, yeah, thank you. All right. Always bad news. All right, I don't, I don't know actually what the Greek word for bad news is, and Saunders didn't either. We were trying to figure it out this week. Could not figure it out. I figured that was a good fill-in. The point, though, is that in each of these cases, whether, whether it's a wedding or the arrival of a baby or the winning of a battle, each of those are events that were anticipated. And then the announcement came what we call the gospel, came. The good news that those awaited events had occurred. The gospel, the good announcement in the New Testament, works very, very much the same way. There was, in the Old Testament, an anticipation, an expectation that Yahweh, the God of Israel, would bring His heavenly kingdom to earth. And when He arrived, When the expectation was fulfilled, there would be a proclamation of good news, the good news of his arrival. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. So if you're at home, I I don't have these uh, verses on the screen for you, so you're going to have to work. Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to give you a moment to turn there. We're going to be on Isaiah for three different passages. So just go ahead and turn back, get the hard work done, and we'll be back in Matthew in no time at all. Isaiah chapter 40, and we're just going to look at verses 9 and 10. And a lot of these are passages that we've seen as we've studied Matthew's gospel, the good news. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Now there's that word. Good news, euangelion, gospel, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of, there it is again, good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, now here's the content of the announcement. What are they going to say? What is the good news that they're going to announce? Here it is. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. So Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, is prophesying forward that God Himself would one day come and rule over the earth. And when He arrived, Jerusalem, the city of God's presence, they would have the privilege of announcing the good news of His coming. And that announcement... Would be a gospel proclamation. Now, now flip over to Isaiah chapter fifty-two, just a couple pages or a couple clicks if you're using the digital Bible. Isaiah fifty-two verse seven, and you might be familiar with this verse if you know Romans chapter ten. Isaiah fifty-two seven: How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news! There's that word again, the gospel, angelion. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings, there it is again, the gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, now here is the content of the good news, your God reigns. You see it? Again, the good news announcement The long-awaited proclamation is, your God reigns. In other words, God is king. And the rest of that passage probably sounds really familiar to you because of Romans chapter 10. Remember in Romans chapter 10, how will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to to them? And how will someone preach unless they are sent? And then Paul quotes Isaiah 52, saying that the preacher, the proclaimer of this age, is the one who Isaiah prophesied about the one who proclaims the good news. And again, according to Isaiah, what is the good news that was expected? That God reigns. Now turn over to Isaiah 61. You're like, I thought we were in Matthew. We will get to Matthew, but you've got to understand Isaiah to understand Matthew. Isaiah 61, verse 1. And you might know this one as well. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring what? The gospel. Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to claim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus claims this prophecy for himself over and over and over again in the gospels. He fulfills it. In many ways and on many occasions, he is the one who is anointed with the Spirit of the Lord. And we saw that anointing at his baptism. Spirit comes down on Jesus. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. But what then does this servant of the Lord do? Well, in Isaiah 61, he announces the good news. The gospel. He proclaims that the presence of God is has arrived. The age of the kingdom of heaven has arrived. So, so if you're tracking, the Old Testament expectation was that God would bring His kingdom reign, and by reign we mean rule, R-E-I-G-N, and it would spread over all the earth, and the kingdom's arrival would come with the arrival of the Messiah, the Son of David, the anointed King. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because at the beginning of Matthew, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is going around making this announcement. Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew says when Jesus is doing that, he is proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the announcement of the coming of the kingdom. The anticipated news was the coming kingdom of God. The arrival of that kingdom is the announcement, the good news, the gospel proclamation. So what is the gospel? Capital G, gospel? It is the long-awaited and expected announcement that God's kingdom has arrived. That's why we never see in the New Testament anybody ever say, he shared the gospel. Because it, it doesn't make sense to share the gospel. Do you think about when the, when the police helicopters are flying overhead. This is something that's only, occurred, that's only happened to me in Southern California. But they're, they're flying overhead and they're, they're making an announcement from their loudspeakers. Evacuate or look out for this bad guy or whatever. It's an announcement. They're not sharing something with you, are they? It's not, they're not sharing. You, snare, you share a bar. You announce news. They're proclaiming something to you. And in the same way, that's why the gospel is an announcement. Something massive has occurred. God's kingdom has come. And so it's always a proclamation in the New Testament. Now, how that affects our evangelism, we'll talk about on another day. But for now, I just need you to see that That the gospel is an announcement, it's a proclamation. Now, now built in to the expectation, think about it, if it was expected in the Old Testament that God was going to one day reign as king over all the world, what does that mean for all the worldly kingdoms? Well, Well, eventually, the kingdom of heaven must prevail over those kingdoms. It must prevail over them. Eventually, every knee will have to bow and every tongue will have to confess that this heavenly king is Lord over them, no matter how great they are, no matter who they are. And one of the expectations that we see in the Old Testament is that that would happen through the long-awaited anointed king, the Messiah. So Dustin read for you from Isaiah chapter 60 today. That was our scripture reading earlier. Isaiah 63 says, the nations shall come to your light. The nations are coming to Messiah. Verse 14 of Isaiah 60 says, the sons of those who afflicted you, that's Israel's enemies, that's the other nations, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. See what's happening? The servant of the Lord, the Messiah, comes and the nations bow down to him. The nations who were once Israel's enemies will bow down to Israel's divine king when he one day brings his heavenly rule to the earth. And that's not just Isaiah. That is all over the Old Testament. You especially see it In the Psalms, Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. In Psalm 46, the Lord says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We read Psalm 67 earlier, and we're going to sing it after the sermon. Let the nations be glad. The nations are glad, the psalmist tells us, because God has brought His heavenly rule over them through the Messiah. So let's just kind of put all this together. The Old Testament expectation was that God would reign over His people and over the nations through the Messiah, the son of David. And the arrival of that promise would be announced as the gospel. You getting a big picture of the Bible now? That's important. It's really important because if you don't know what the expectation was, or at least what it was supposed to be, then this week's passage doesn't make a lick of sense without knowing that Messiah was the promised one who would rule over the nations and through him the nations would worship God, well then this passage just becomes, it's just like another set of miracles. Which is actually the way I used to read Matthew. (laughs) Just a whole bunch of miracles. This is what happened to Jesus' life. He was a really great guy. But, But if you read it that way, these are all miracles that have already been done, aren't they? If you've been following along with Matthew's gospel... It's already been proven to us that Jesus can do all the things that he's doing in this passage. He's already cast out demons, lots of them. He's healed the lame and the blind and the mute and the crippled. He's already made a meal for thousands of people with just a few fish and a few loaves. So, So if our passage this morning is only about the supernatural power behind these miracles, well, this isn't new. That's a bee. It's a honeybee. I'm a beekeeper. I actually have beeswax on my beard right now. So he's wondering how I I got that. (laughs) Well, anyway, bees are really distracting. So these miracles, the point of what I'm getting at is these miracles have already been done. And you've seen them all done. But I want you to understand that Matthew would not waste any ink on telling us something that's already happened. See, Matthew's point in writing this gospel for us, he's showing us Christ. And so I want you to see is that the miracles aren't the point here. Where the miracles happen, that's the point. Who benefits from these miracles in this passage? That's the point. Matthew's aim in writing this book for us is to prove to us that Jesus is, is this long-awaited, anticipated Messiah who brings the kingdom of heaven to earth. That means, according to the expectations from the Old Testament that we looked at, that Matthew must prove that Jesus, as Messiah, somehow brings his rule over the nations. So that's the burden of proof that Matthew has. And I think he meets that in our text. That's exactly what he does in our text. The point of these events is to show us that Messiah has come to bring his merciful rule over the nations. He's come to reconcile the nations to God. And Jesus is that Messiah. So, back to Matthew 15 now. Okay, Let's look at each of these events as they appear in our text. First, we have Jesus and this Canaanite woman. And if you're wondering, oh, he's going to tell us about why he calls her a dog. Yes, we're going to get there. Matthew tells us in verse 21 that Jesus withdrew from there, and if, if this was several weeks ago, but there, in verse 21, is Gennesaret, northern Galilee. So he's in Jewish territory when he's in Gennesaret, and he goes from Jewish territory to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's Gentile territory. These are the most famous cities in Syria in that day. They're really old cities. Ancient cities. Both of these cities mentioned are mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And both of them are known for their opposition to Israel and for their idolatry. So if you, if you open up your Old Testament and you just look up Tyre or Sidon, you'll see them all the way back in the book of Judges. And they were central locations for Baal worship. Idolatry. And then Matthew wants to make it very clear that we are to pick up on this idea when he says in verse 22 that a Canaanite woman came out from there. Now you should know this. Uh, not, not something you should know, but you, I need to tell you this. I need to tell you that nobody in the days when Jesus walked the earth called people from that area Canaanites. That's just, that would be like that would be like us calling someone from Switzerland a barbarian or someone from Iceland a Viking. It's old, old, ancient terminology. The, the more proper, geopolitically correct terminology would be to call her what Mark does in his gospel, a Syro-Phoenician woman. She's from the area of Syria, from the ancient Phoenician people. Right? A Syro-Phoenician woman. But Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. To call this woman a Canaanite is to arouse, in the the Jewish reader's mind, Israel's ancient enemies. Pagans, Baal worshippers, people that God hated because they were constantly drawing God's people away from Him and into idol worship. Matthew wants us to see, without a doubt, who this woman is. She is not a descendant of Abraham. She's an ancient enemy of God's people. Which is why it's so amazing when she recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Look at what she says in verse 22. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. We're going verse by verse now for those of you at home. She says to Jesus, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. Now that phrase, Son of David, that is only used of Messiah. The son of David is the Messiah, the eternal king who would rule from David's throne. So far in Matthew's gospel, now only three people have called Jesus son of David. The first two were two blind men on the side of the road who heard him coming and cried out the same thing. Have mercy on me, son of David. And now, we have a third person, a Baal-worshipping enemy of Israel, and a woman. And she sees the truth that the blind men saw, that no one else could see. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of David. We'll talk more next week about who doesn't see that truth, but that's chapter 16. and You'll have to wait. Well, the story keeps going. In verse 23, Matthew tells us, He did not answer her a word. So you can kind of imagine the scene, can't you? Jesus and his disciples are walking down the street, wherever they are, somewhere in the region of Syria. And this lady is following behind them, and she's just continuously over and over again crying out, wailing after him, Have mercy on me! Have mercy on me! Have mercy on me, son of David! And the word that Matthew uses there for crying out, it's ongoing. By some God-ordained miracle, she recognizes that the man in front of her is the only person in the entire world with the power to save her daughter. And so she's going to beg him with all that she is to help her. And Jesus is just totally ignoring her, which is kind of unlike him, isn't it? And so she keeps wailing, and she keeps screaming, and she keeps following after Jesus and the disciples, and eventually, we don't know how long this went on, but eventually the disciples get so fed up and so annoyed with the woman's crying out, they just beg Jesus. Jesus, just do what she wants. Send her away. And we know that that's what they're asking, because look at the way that Jesus responds. Look at verse 24. The reason why Jesus won't help the woman is this. And he's talking to his disciples. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Matthew's going to explain to us more of what this means as the story unfolds, but I'm going to give you a hint from Paul's letter to the Romans what Jesus means by this. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, right? The good news of the, the coming king. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Well, it's at this point, Jesus, and I can imagine, he, he has stopped to, to talk to his disciples So they've been walking, she's screaming, the disciples ask him a question, he turns to talk to them, and and the, the scene just kind of closes in on him. And he's giving the disciples this theology lesson about why Israel's king must help Israel first and not the Canaanites. And this woman comes, and she gets between Jesus and the disciples, and she kneels down before him, which... Sounds like Isaiah, doesn't it? She kneels down before him, calls him Lord. This is Canaanite kneeling before Messiah and calling him Lord. And she says, help me. Now, if you were telling a story, if you're writing this and you're telling a story about a compassionate man... ...and the point of the story was that he was compassionate and good and he loved everyone... This is the point where you would write into the story. And he laid his hand on her shoulder. And he smiled and said, I was waiting for you to ask. Take me to your daughter. But that's not what happens. See, the point of the story is not that Jesus is compassionate, though Jesus is the most compassionate man to ever walk the earth. The point is not his compassion. The point is his kingship. Jesus is Messiah. To emphasize this point, he swaps metaphors. He goes from lost sheep to children, and he, and he addresses the Canaanite pagan woman who was on her knees before him. And Jesus says to her in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this, the imagery just got really vivid, didn't it? You can picture the way that Jesus has described this, you can picture mealtime and there's a family sitting at the table and it's been a while since they've eaten. The kids are are really hungry. And Jesus says it would not be right for anyone in that family to take the food meant for the starving children and throw it outside into the alley where the, the mongrel dogs are. Nobody would do that. Especially not the father the one responsible for providing for his his family. Think, Think here of how God provides for Israel throughout the Old Testament and that unique fatherly relationship he has with Israel. God gave manna, bread, from heaven for the Israelites. And he didn't do that for anyone else. The nations... When you read the Old Testament, you see that the nations are as dogs compared to that unique, special relationship that God has with his chosen children. Well, Jesus, like manna from heaven, bread from the heavenly table, was sent to give life to God's children in their time of need. Let me say that again. Jesus... Like bread from the heavenly table was sent to give life to God's children in their time of need. And you could say that it just ends there, but it doesn't. Because this woman is persistent. This persistent and perceptive woman makes one of the most theologically profound statements in all of Matthew's gospel. Look at what she says in verse 27. Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Let me translate that for you. She's agreeing with Jesus, first of all, that God's relationship with Israel is of primary importance. God is the Lord of the house, the Israelites, the Jews are his elect children. But then, she says... The Lord's provision in giving Jesus, the Messiah, to Israel is so great that the dogs, the nations, she's saying benefit from what he provides. Guys, this is big. God's gracious and merciful provision of the Christ for his people is so great a feast, this woman believes, that the nations can also be fed and be satisfied. That should hearken back to Genesis chapter 12 with God's promise to Abraham. The Lord told Abraham, I will make you, he is the father of the Israelites, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise. And then God told Abraham's son Isaac, the child through whom the promise came. God tells Isaac the same thing. In your offspring, Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then Isaac has these, these twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And the one through whom the promise goes, Jacob, God tells him, and in you, same thing, in you and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Do you see that Old Testament promise? And that's the promise that this woman is claiming. Yes, God has a very special relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all their children after them. But it is through one of their offspring that the nations would be blessed. And what's happening here is the Canaanite woman is saying to Jesus, and you're that offspring, and you're here to bless me too. She's claiming the promise given to people that were not of her race. And with that little phrase, the dogs eat the crumbs, the dogs eat the crumbs, the nations receive the blessings, the leftovers, that woman shows that she understands the Bible. She understands the arrival of the age of Messiah unlike anyone else that we have seen in Matthew's Gospel thus far. And that is why Jesus says at that point, he says to her something he didn't say to anyone else. Think of what he told Peter. Oh, ye of little faith. Look what he tells this woman. Oh, woman, great is your faith. And it's at that moment, in response to that promise claiming faith that this woman has, that Jesus heals the woman's daughter with a word. He says it, and it happens. He is the Word of God who called all of creation into existence. He is the one who has the power over demons and over nature, not just in Israel, but everywhere. He's Messiah. He's king of all creation. He's king of the nations. And he's showing that here. He has arrived. The kingdom is here. Friends, this woman shows us what it means to have faith in Jesus as Lord and Messiah. This is faith. For you and I, To have faith in Jesus Christ means to recognize, just like she did, that we are undeserving dogs. We have nothing to bring to the table. Nothing in ourselves to lay claim to God's mercy. Nothing but our own mangy and rabid and ferocious flea-bitten lives. But to have faith To have the faith that this woman has means to believe that God's majesty and his rule is so great and his coming kingdom is so prodigious and magnificent and his provision for his children is so abundant that we as the scavenging dogs benefit from his goodness and from his promises. And listen, our benefit, the benefit that we receive as the nations, as these scavenging dogs, even while we were opposed to God, like Canaanites, we are given the privilege of adoption as children. So so, so listen, through the mercy of God and our faith in Christ, we are transformed from scavenging dogs into children who share in the riches of the family table. That's how great Jesus is. And I'm getting really far ahead of Matthew because that will not happen without the cross of Christ and we won't see that until much later. But that's the trajectory, our adoption from dogs to children, that's the trajectory of, that this event sets for us. Well, let's keep going in chapter 15. From from that region, and he's in Syria, so picture if you've got a mental map of the Middle East, and I hope you do. You should. If you don't, turn over to the back of your Bible. That's what the maps are there for. They're not inspired, but but they're there. So if you think of this mental map, picture where Syria is. It's it's north of Israel. And from there, Jesus travels east-southeast back towards the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew tells us he walked around the Sea of Galilee or alongside the Sea of Galilee. So he didn't get in a boat this time. So he goes from north, northwest of the Sea of Galilee, comes south, southeast to the Sea of Galilee. He walks around it and all the way down to the southeast side. And he goes up on a mountain and he sits down. And Matthew doesn't exactly tell us where this mountain is. But we have four Gospels and Mark does. He tells us this is in the region called the Decapolis. Again, another gentile region. He's on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And look what Jesus does there. We're around verse 29 and verse 30 now. And we're just going to kind of skim a little bit. What Matthew shows us here is that Jesus, the Messiah, heals these gentiles in this area in all the same prophecy-fulfilling ways that he healed the Jewish people. So look at verse 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. Now, the reason why Matthew gives us those specific ailments is because those are the ailments that Isaiah prophesied Messiah would heal. Isaiah prophesied. That Messiah would give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, a voice to the mute, and he would make the lame walk. And so Jesus is doing those exact miracles here, not with Jewish people, but with Gentiles. Which is to see, we should see that the blessing of the Messiah is going to the nations. And so what is the response of the people? Look at verse 31. They glorified who? The God of Israel. Now, what did we read earlier in the Old Testament? The expectation of the coming kingdom was that the nations would glorify the God of Israel. And Matthew shows us here, that's exactly what the nations do in response to Jesus. That's amazing. The blessing and provision of the Messiah given to Israel is so great and so rich that it's overflowing and bursting from Israel's geographical borders into the nations beside them. And those nations are glorifying Israel's God. Remember, these are pagans. They don't worship Yahweh. They don't go to the temple and give sacrifices. They worship other gods that they make with their own hands. And now, because Messiah has come, they're worshiping the one true God. If you, you've got to see that this, this is a glimpse. This is a glimpse that is just the beginning of what is to come. When we get to the book of Acts, and we're not going to get to the book of Acts tonight. We could, but we're not going to. If you read the book of Acts, you see the disciples grasping this truth, the importance of Messiah's rule over the nations. And what do the disciples do? They spread the church, they spread the good news, Of Messiah's arrival from Jerusalem to Judea and then into Samaria and then the whole world. And and the Apostle Paul's goal is to reach the ends of the earth, isn't it? He wants to get to Spain. World missions, there's an application for you. All right, world missions is really about making known what is already true. Jesus already rules over the nations. He is the Messiah. That's what Messiah does. When you take this news of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven to the nations, here's what you're doing. You're announcing that reality. You're telling all the people who will listen that the kingdom has come, that Jesus is the king of that kingdom, and that there are wondrous benefits Here are the benefits of the reality of Christ's kingship. Forgiveness of sins, righteousness before God, justification before God, adoption as God's children, holiness in this life, perfection and glorification in eternal life. Those and many others are the benefits of the rule of Jesus Christ. So when you proclaim The gospel. You're communicating just how great Jesus' rule over the new creation is. And you're pleading with those people not to get caught on the wrong side of that reality. Because that Messiah will one day return as judge. Does that give you some perspective on what's happening here? I think if if you can read the Bible through less individualistic Lens, then you can better grasp what it means. Let's go on to the last section. After these people have been with Jesus for three days, Jesus, the good king who provides for his people, begins to get concerned. These people have been with me for three days and they're about to walk home a long way. We're in a desolate place. They might not make it. He begins to be concerned for their health. He doesn't want them to pass out on their walk home. And and what Matthew shows us there is that Jesus has he does have compassion, and it is the same compassion that he had for his own people, the Jewish people. Because that word compassion, I have compassion on the crowd, it's the exact same thing he said in chapter 14 regarding the Jewish people. And what we see happen next is also almost exactly what we saw happen back in chapter 14, with the Jewish people. There's a handful of bread loaves and a few pieces of probably dried fish, kind of like a fish jerky. And Jesus asks the people to recline as if they were about to enjoy a, a rich feast, a fancy meal. And then he does the exact same thing. He prays a Thanksgiving over the meal, he breaks the bread, he gives the bread to his disciples, who in turn give it to the people. And exactly the same thing happens. Everybody eats. Everyone is satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. The story is exactly the same. But there are... There's one really significant difference I want you to see. Do you remember... If you were here with us back in chapter 14... Do you remember how many baskets of food were left over after the feeding of the Jews? There were 12 baskets... Israel has 12 tribes. 12, whenever you see the number 12 in the Bible, is a reference to Israel. It's Israel's special number. It's the number on the back of their jersey. Okay, So 12 is always Israel. So the point of those 12 baskets taken up at the end of that feeding was to show that the provision of God was so great that there was more than enough for God's covenant people. All right, There's leftovers. More than enough. So let the reader understand the lesson from chapter 14 was that there was plenty of food left over for any dogs who happened to be wandering around that evening looking for crumbs from the master's picnic with his beloved children. Did, did that connection happen for you yet? Nod your head yes, or I'll explain it again. <laughs> because that is really important. The meal that the Master has with his children has leftovers. Enough leftovers for the nations. And now, this meal in chapter 15, we see that the provision of Messiah is so great that not only can he feed his covenant people and have plenty left over, now, after feeding the nations, there are seven baskets left over. Well, seven's a special number, too. The number seven, all throughout Scripture, is the number of completeness, of fulfillment. The suggestion here that Matthew wants us to see is that the first feeding was to the Jews, and there was more than enough, and the second feeding is for the nations, and that represents what would be the fulfillment, the completion of Messiah's mission. That's why at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says... Go to the nations. Because that's when things will be complete. To quote one writer, Messiah's bountiful supply is so lavish that even the overflow of his provision is enough to satisfy the needs of all people everywhere. All people. Everywhere. Come to me, all, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Messiah's bountiful supply is so lavish that even the overflow of his provision is enough to satisfy the needs of all people everywhere. Do you believe that? Do you believe That the bread of life is enough for you? Do you believe that what God has given us in Christ is enough for you? Do you believe that what Christ has accomplished through his death is enough to save even you? I know some of you feel like outsiders. Like you don't belong. Like Jesus isn't for you. For whatever reason, whether it's whatever religion you grew up with, or, or it's your ethnicity, or your past, or your secrets, or your sin, or your shame, you feel like you're an outsider and you can't participate. You don't belong somehow. But if you have gathered anything, from what Matthew was showing us, it should be that with Jesus, there are no outsiders. Christ has died for men, women, and children from every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation. In Christ, whatever it is that has kept you away has been destroyed by His death and resurrection. And so now He invites you. Come. Come to the table. Come to the table and dine with Him. Believe today that Jesus is King. And He's King over you. Trust today that He has died to cleanse you of whatever would keep you from citizenship in His kingdom. In faith, be baptized as a sign of citizenship in His kingdom. And come and eat. Come and eat from the bounty of the Messiah. Because there's always enough. There's always enough. Well, as I said at the beginning of our time tonight, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Wouldn't that be appropriate? The Lord is inviting us, the nations, to come to the table. He's provided for us a people who had no share But in Christ, we do have a share.